Welcome to Cogley and Morrow on Politics. This is Nathaniel Cogley. My esteemed co-host, Dr. Morrow, will be showing up in the second half of the show to join us as we talk Iowa caucuses. Uh, for this segment, I'm going to go solo, and we're going to look at the big week on impeachment this week. When we left it last week, um, the president's counsel was about to make its case. And over the course of this week, on Saturday, the president's counsel made its case, and they also presented on Monday and Tuesday. They used about only half of the time that was available to them, which surprised many. I spoke last week about how the two teams were very different. Um, the House managers are themselves representatives in the House of Representatives, and they have home districts to play to. They're on national TV. And some of that came out in kind of the way they presented the case, not in ways that would be designed to attract Senate votes. Um, Schiff said, you know, the House will present their case and the council will present their case. Then we'll get the questions and then the trial will begin. In other words, uh, there's no trial without witnesses. Jerry Nadler called the Impoundment Control Act of 1974 the Anti-Impoundment Act of 1974. So just these things are not designed to win over votes, but they are designed to play to the home district. But when we got to the president's council, they don't have a home district. They are a professional team of lawyers designed to efficiently win this case. And I think that showed that they used up about half their time. And I think they put a pretty good case together. There's one thing that came up in the president's counsel uh, arguments that I thought was interesting that did not get picked up by the media. So number one is they emphasize that in the call the president had with President Zelensky of Ukraine, there was an emphasis on burden sharing that President Trump did in that call make quite a, a thing about the need for other countries to chip in to Ukrainian defense, that the president was saying the USA does a lot for you guys and other countries need to step in. We have it right here. This is the transcript of the, of the call. And President Trump says, I will say that we do a lot for Ukraine. We spend a lot of effort and a lot of time, much more than the European countries are doing, and they should be helping you more than they are. Germany does almost nothing for you. All they do is talk, and I think it's something that you should really ask them about. And he goes on and on, and the president Zelensky of Ukraine says, you are absolutely right, not only 100%, but actually 1,000% right. So they talk about European countries chipping in, and there was testimony on the House committee side of, of burden sharing, and the House counsel didn't um, present that. And the re only reason I bring this up, because I wrote on the Impoundment Control Act of 1974 in the Washington Examiner with three op-eds, and this is one of the exceptions that allows a president to temporarily defer funds within the fiscal year, according to Section 684, which is the relevant section here, to achieve savings. Uh, there's, there's three reasons a president might temporarily defer funds within the fiscal year. One is to provide for contingencies, um, to achieve savings, the, the, the efforts to try to get European countries to chip in so the U.S. wouldn't have to bear the full burden of helping you, Ukraine defend itself in eastern Ukraine against Russia. And then the third exception, as specifically provided by law, and of course, federal law is deep and complex. There's tons of stuff in there. But anyway, just the idea of burden sharing ties into the effort for savings. So the President's Council uh, made their case using half the time. During that time, all the New York Times article came out, and it was entitled, Trump tied Ukraine aid to inquiries he sought Bolton book says. So John Bolton, former national security advisor for the president having a, a manuscript of an upcoming book. 
and some of that stuff leaked out there. So their word choice is interesting. They say that Mr. Bolton's question that he, uh, after Bolton asked President Trump a question, um, the president replied, and this is quoting the New York Times article, he, quote unquote, preferred sending no assistance to Ukraine until officials had turned over all materials they had about the Russia investigation, dot, dot, dot. And it continues. Um, Why this is interesting, one, Bolton has already said He's already established distance from this whole thing. Um, in the House testimony, Fiona Hill had said that Bolton told her that Bolton is not, quote unquote, part of whatever drug deal Sondland and Mulvaney are cooking up. In other words, Bolton has told other people he's not a part of this thing. He's not a part of this Ukraine negotiation. He's, he's, he intentionally distanced himself. So he's actually wouldn't be that close to even the discussions on, uh, on, U- on Ukraine. And in fact, he was upset that there was Sondland was working on it and he wasn't working on it. Sondland was much closer. And then in this New York Times, he says, Trump says Trump prefers, prefers sending no assistance to Ukraine until officials had turned over all materials they had about the Russia investigation. Well, let me uh, break some news. I mean, Trump has a lot of preferences that aren't policies. <laughs> President Trump would prefer there be no filibusters in the Senate. President Trump would prefer Congress members had term limits. Uh, preferences aren't policies, but the other key thing there is it's about the Russia investigation. Well, that's totally different than the, the Biden-Burisma talk we've had. If you remember in the call with President Zelensky, the president wants two investigations, one into Biden's activities in Burisma, another into the CrowdStrike server from 2016, uh, involving any claim that uh, who interfered in our 2016 elections. And it goes on to talk about investigate Democrats and political rivals. That could be Hillary Clinton, not necessarily Joe Biden. And besides, to make the case effectively against the president, they need to prove two things. One, that the president did what they're alleging he did. And in that case, it started to hit the waves that maybe Bolton has some relevant testimony to this. Did the president do what they're alleging he did? But the other deeper question is, is what they're alleging he did even a high crime or misdemeanor that warrants removal from office and barring from future office? And they need to prove both points. And so Bolton is relevant to the question of, did the president do what is being alleged? But he's totally not relevant to the question of, is that even a high crime or misdemeanor that warrants being removed from office and barred from future office, right? So... You need both to proceed. You know, if there's no grounds here to remove a president and bar him from future office, the case should be dismissed. If there's absolutely nothing there, even even if the president did what's being alleged is even war- doesn't even warrant uh, removing from office and barring from future office, then th- you don't need to be here. You need to be in a different format, not in the format to request removing a president and barring from future office. So after the president's counsel made their, their, their presentation using up only half the time that they were allowed to on Wednesday and Thursday, we had what I thought was a very entertaining um, line of questioning. The senators got to ask their own questions, but they had to submit it in written form, which is interesting. It's interesting also that doing the written form format, it opens up the possibility of submitting them anonymously, but that's not what they do. The, the, the senator stands up and identifies themselves and tells the chief justice they have a question, they submit to the chief justice, and the chief justice reads the question. So it's um, interesting why the senator doesn't doesn't just read it themselves. But there were some really interesting questions that were asked. And so 
they they open up what the senators themselves were focused on as they headed towards those very critical votes, uh, votes on whether or not to pursue witnesses, and then ultimately the vote on guilty or not guilty. The questions they ask really key on some of the dynamics they've picked up from the prosecution and the defense and from their general understanding of the situation and what might be helping to form their vote. So we got uh, an interesting question here. There's a few of them. I'm going to read them and discuss why they're so interesting. This one comes from senators, all Republican senators, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, and Lisa Murkowski. Those are all three very interesting because those are the three that were almost about to break ranks with the Republican Party and potentially go with witnesses. And so they ask this question, if President Trump had more than one motive for his alleged conduct, how should the Senate consider more than one motive in its assessment of Article 1? Article 1 is that abuse of power charge. And the way that um, the, the prosecution has pursued this has to say that the president requested an investigation into the Biden's activities with Burisma from 2014 and 2016 for only one motive. And that motive being a personal benefit to help win the 2020 presidential election. And they argued in their, very clearly argued in their case, that this was against national security. That by investigating the Biden's activities with Burisma, the president was acting against national security and only for his personal interest. The president's counsel, uh, Pam Bondi, uh, made this 45-minute presentation on why Hunter Biden and Joe, acti- Joe Biden's activities with Burisma do raise suspicion, not only from the UK Office of Fraud, but the Obama State Department itself uh, warned its staff about the apparent conflict of interest. Um, you know, Biden becomes point man on Ukraine, and then Hunter Biden gets an $80,000 a month job on the Burisma board. So who's to say there's anything wrong with $80,000 a month on a board? I wouldn't mind that, um, but... Um, It's certainly peculiar, you know, and the president in his call with Zelensky says it looks horrible to him and it raises suspicions with a lot of people. And is an investigation into that really against the national interest? It seems to me like it might be for the national interest to make sure that our foreign policy has integrity and no undue influence through, um, you know, uh, family members getting very profitable positions on boards. But whether or not it's, it's for the national security or not, there's certainly an argument that getting to the bottom of very suspicious uh, activities with family members getting $80,000 a month on board on certain boards is something legitimate. So this question from the senator is about what if the president had dual motives, right? So what if he was concerned about the Biden activity in Burisma, like genuinely concerned and genuinely out of a national interest, wanted that looked into, but also maybe had his eyes on Biden because Biden was running for president and attacking President Trump and things like that. And this idea of a dual motive. So that's kind of interesting. Um, And that became a discussion point that they raised is that, you know, all politicians do think about the effects of their policies. I mean, so if someone thinks a tax cut is good for America and will also help them win reelection, well, that's just like normal stuff, you know. Um, if, a, if a president thinks a trade deal is good for America and it also will be a popular trade deal that helps them win reelection, good for, you know, good for America. This is kind of, you can't get into this kind of dual motive um, critique. If, if, if the president thinks there was something in national security interest, the fact that there's a political 
uh, upside may or may not be even important at all. Um, so that was an interesting question. It seems like some senators do think there may have been some sort of political interest, but they also agree that the activities of the Bidens with Burisma is a national security concern that maybe should be looked into. And maybe the president had uh, dual interests in looking at that. Um, Senator Rob Portman asked this question, quote unquote, he's from Ohio, uh, given that impeachment proceedings are privileged in the Senate and largely prevent other work from taking place while they are ongoing, please address the implications of allowing the House to present an incomplete case to the Senate and request the Senate to seek testimony from additional witnesses. So this is very interesting. As we see, the um, trial in the Senate basically shuts down the Senate. The Senate can't do anything else. The senators need to be silent. The senators need to have no cell phones. The senators need to do full days and even come in on Saturdays. Nothing else is done. It's the House where these things are done through a committee process, and the House can still entertain other votes on other things. And so some of the senators are concerned that the House did not pursue a full case, did not pursue full witnesses, did not pursue full testimony, and is now expecting the Senate to put together all these additional pieces that the House itself did not pursue. And so we could see right here from this question, some senators were thinking, it's not our job to be doing full investigations into witnesses and documents that the House itself didn't pursue. The House is the better investigatory body because these things don't shut down the House. They do shut down the Senate. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting question. Um, Lisa Murkowski herself, which is going to become the critical vote here as we moved into Friday, Lisa Murkowski alone asked this one, describe in further detail your contention that all subpoenas issued prior to the passage of House Resolution 660 are an exercise of invalid subpoena authority by the House committees. So this was very interesting. We, we've been talking about this is for the second charge against the president, which is the uh, obstruction of Congress charge, and how specifically it's not obstruction of justice. They did not go through the courts to, to force certain people in the executive branch to testify. And what's interesting is the president's defense made the case that actually they never claimed executive privilege when people in the executive branch refused to testify. What they said is that the Constitution gives the House of Representatives the power of impeachment and that the House passed no resolution for impeachment prior to requesting these people testify and that therefore even the, re the subpoena requests were invalid because the House itself had not established an impeachment inquiry. Nancy Pelosi going to a microphone and speaking of it and setting up a committee is not the House, the full House, the full 435 members um, validating that we, yes, we do have an official impeachment inquiry. So the president's team was making sure they said we did not even claim executive privilege. Um, and this would undercut the obstruction of Congress charge in the fact that the House itself had not didn't even go through a valid House vote in order to compel such witnesses through its um, process. Um, Finally, we had another interesting question here from Senator Joe Manchin, and he's a Democrat from a 40-point Trump state, so we're looking for his vote when it comes up to that guilty, not guilty. I don't know how he could vote guilty in a 40-point Trump state. He's likely one of two Democrats who's going to vote not guilty upcoming. So he says, even Mr. Dershowitz said in 1998 that an impeachable offense, quote-unquote, certainly doesn't have to be a crime. What has happened in the last 22 years to change the original intent of the framers and the historic meaning of the term high crimes and misdemeanors. 
Um, so this is interesting. Does an impeachable offense have to be a crime or not? So I think what's lost in a lot of this is a slight distinction. So impeachment itself is not removing a president and barring them from office. Impeachment is calling into question the integrity of something or someone. So by impeaching, you could call into question the integrity of someone, but that's not to say what's to be done about that. But that question about what's to be done about that is a deeper level question that does require more evidence. Um, and so the Constitution does specify that to remove a president and bar them from future office, that does require treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors. So the technical thing here is that to impeach, to call in someone's character into question does not itself involve a crime, but to remove from office and bar from future office does involve, need to involve treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And so the thing is that these articles of impeachment, both Article 1 and Article 2, specifically call for the president to be removed from office and barred from future office. And so this is not a minor impeachment just to call into character just to call his character into question. This is the all out, remove from office, bar from future office. You need a high crime or misdemeanor. And what was it? We don't have a high crime or misdemeanor. Um, the Empowerment Control Act of 1974 says the president can temporarily defer funds. Section 687 says if he's not releasing funds and he's supposed to, that could be a civil case in U.S. District Court, not a criminal case in U.S. District Court. Presidents are allowed to uh, look into investigations. So without that high crime or misdemeanor, they're losing the argument that a president should be removed from office and barred from future office. So then we got to the vote of witnesses. We are looking at different witnesses and how they might vote. Um, someone like um, Mitt Romney seems to have a very adversarial relationship. And then someone like Susan Collins, she's from Maine. She represents Maine. She represents a state that Hillary Clinton won. And it's very good for her to be patient and let the sides present and maybe even have an extra witness. Um, and people were also looking at some other potential votes that would want to open up the door to witnesses. And at the last moment, it became clear that one of those people, Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, was not on board for witnesses. So finally on Friday, we got to a very critical vote and we saw only two Republicans join with the Democrats to call for more witnesses, not three. And three would have created this very interesting tie scenario because the Democrats have 47 senators and they, if they picked up three, that would have given a 50-50 tie. And it's unclear whether, um, at least at the time, if Chief Justice Roberts would have broken that tie or not. Um, the Constitution doesn't say the Chief Justice can, but in the Andrew Johnson trial, the Chief Justice did. Um, and so... They only turned out to have two Republican senators join them on the witnesses without even clarity on what, who those witnesses were. So 51 Republicans said, no more witnesses. We've seen enough. And that means we're going to head to a vote on actually the verdict. They're going to have some closing deliberations and head to a, a verdict. That vote will be very different. Um, there are some senators here who are voting for witnesses, but they can't vote guilty on this. Uh, Senator Lisa... Well, Lisa Murkowski voted not for the witnesses, but Susan Collins, she's a Republican nonetheless. 
Uh, Mitt Romney would have a tough time in Utah if he voted guilty on something like this. Joe Manchin in West Virginia, a 40-point Trump state, he's going to have a tough time if he was to try to vote guilty on this. And Senator Doug Jones of Alabama up for re-election, you know, that's a huge Trump state, 27-point um, Trump state, I believe. And uh, he can't vote for this. So we're looking at the vote for, there's probably only 44 or 45 votes here on guilty. Um, and so as we hit this very interesting phase, was this trial going to be drawn out and have more witnesses or not? Um, we're not going to have more witnesses. And immediately the uh, minority leader in the Senate came out and said exactly what I thought he would say. He's saying we didn't even have a trial. We didn't, we're not going to have witnesses. Therefore, we didn't have a trial. Um, this is what um, Jerry Nadler and Adam Schiff had set up for him. Uh, Jerry Nadler said, if you guys vote against witnesses, you're complicit in the cover-up. Adam Schiff said, there's, we'll start the trial when we have witnesses, implying if there's no witnesses, no trial. And now Schumer nailed that narrative that we're going to hear from them during the election to say that there wasn't a trial. There wasn't a trial in the Senate because there was no witnesses. Of course, the problem, though, is you need an actual... You need articles of impeachment that actually rise to the level of removing a president and barring from future office. Otherwise, you shouldn't be there. Maybe you have a civil case in U.S. District Court if you want to try your luck there, although the funds were released, you know, so they might throw it out too, being a a mute point. Um, So anyway, those are some thoughts. We'll be talking about impeachment again coming up because we're expecting finally the closing vote coming up next week on whether or not the president's guilty or not guilty. We're going to take a break here. And after the break, we'll be joined by my co-host and we'll be looking forward to the Iowa caucuses tomorrow. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsay Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on Politics. And we are pleased to be joined by the co-host of the show, Dr. Eric Moreau. Welcome into the studio today. Thank you. It's uh, good to be able to join you for this uh, last half of the show. Well, the show's uh, better but, when uh, you're here. Yes, so. well, well, we, we, uh, we have to give some attention uh, since uh, tomorrow uh, will be the caucuses in Iowa and really the official start uh, of a intense... A race uh, for the Democratic nomination. Uh, all eyes are, are really looking to this. This is what makes this so significant is here we have the very uh, first primary that everybody has been prepping for uh, probably since maybe three or four months after the 2016 election where people started uh, wondering, okay, who is going to step out and, and run against uh, Donald Trump in uh, 2020? And so we're here. We're well, at the start of it. So many interesting things about Iowa. There are only 41 delegates to the convention, which is about 4,000, uh, 3,900 something on a first ballot or 4,700 on a second ballot. So they represent less than 1% of the delegates, give or take. But it's such an overweight influence because they are the first caucus. 
Now I just said caucus, not a primary, a right. caucus. So the technical sides of what is a caucus, how do they do a caucus, and how they represent so much influence is also interesting. Right, and I think that draws a lot of attention to this process because in Iowa, because it is so drawn out and it begins so early, uh, and there's a little bit of history behind that we can uh, can look at here in a moment, but uh, what, what really uh, uh, is interesting, what many people may not know, uh, especially our listeners here in Texas where we have a clear primary system, it's an open primary where you can go and vote no matter what your party affiliation, you can vote in the Democratic or Republican in primary. Uh, you can go back uh, when they do the precinct, uh, uh, kind of a caucus is what it ends up being, but it's where they count the votes and they determine how many delegates out of that precinct to the county convention onto the state convention. But in Iowa, it's a system uh, that has a lot of uh, political theater to it uh, because it is people coming together and trying to, to convince other people to throw their support uh, behind a certain candidate. So the way these will start out, and there'll be uh, many of them on uh, covered on the news uh, where uh, on Monday evening where people can watch and see this process, and I would encourage you to do it because it's really unique if you've never seen it before. Uh, but they come, they hear speeches uh, by supporters uh, of, the, uh, le- of the candidates that are running in the state. Uh, they uh, listen to that, and then they, f- they physically move uh, to a part of the room showing their support of that candidate uh, for that particular caucus. And this might be held in high school basketball gymnasiums around the state. Right, right. Uh, gymnasiums, civic centers. I mean, where there's enough room with given the field of, of the candidates that we have where uh, everyone basically goes to the designated spot for the particular candidate that they support. Uh, now, this there's a change to that this process this this year in previous years this could go on for multiple rounds and people could move all over the place uh, even if their candidate had strong support in the beginning if if people convinced and said hey come over here that 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 could all change and thus it was very difficult to, to determine winners sometimes I mean sometimes the uh, uh, the the uh, caucusing part in the in the the support for a candidate in a caucus would there be so so much diversity? Uh, they've limited it this year to two rounds. Uh, first round, uh, if a candidate gains hits the fifteen percent threshold of that caucus, depending on how many people are there, uh, they are considered a viable candidate, and those uh, uh, votes uh, or the, those. Uh, 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 affiliation of those people that's locked in mm-hmm. so that per that that candidate cannot lose ground in that caucus and so those those people basically can sign off on their on their vote and go home they're, they're done they can't change their vote once they're in a group that has reached that 15 percent threshold the rest of them go to a second round and this is the final round and so they're the, the that's where the bargaining the discussion the debate support seeing who has support who doesn't or who might be left with two people standing over in the corner it's to try to win over uh, those additional votes to get the other candidates remaining uh, up to that 15 percent threshold and so that that's where some of the the really the political theater will come in is in that second round certainly not as extended as it has been in previous years uh, but uh, but that will still be there and so then those results of those caucuses uh, go on to uh, to the county and then on to the state level and they're equated with uh, with 
these 41 uh, votes that will go on to the National Democratic Convention. So based on the, the returns from all over the state, that will determine the breakup of those candidates and who, who they support uh, in representing the voters of Iowa in the Democratic primary. It's interesting, the complexity of this process of uh, precinct caucuses with multiple rounds, the county conventions, the district conventions, the state conventions. This is part of the reason why they got to go first in 1972. And Iowa has already moved on for its primary elections for senator or house. They do vote, you know, regular primaries now later in the cycle. Mm -hmm. But they're holding on to this caucus thing because it makes them first in the nation in both parties at this point and gives them this outweighed influence on the process. I mean, you could ask yourself in the in the presidential race, uh, how much more do you hear of Iowa uh, after this, I mean, in terms of uh, its its place as a uh, when we talk about swing states, when we look at at critical uh, voting alignments in certain states in order to influence the electoral college. Okay, I was going to fade away, uh, and, and so this is their moment. This is really their moment to receive a significant amount of national attention uh, on this process. And yes, that's something that they uh, certainly do not want to give up. So I, I wouldn't anticipate any more extensive rule changes. I'm wondering too if if it. it it loses some of the drama with only going through two rounds because these multiple rounds that could go on late into the evening uh, were a part of it. And, and maybe people are getting a little weary of that as well. But, but, uh, and so two rounds, it may be a lot less dramatic and it may be over quicker, uh, but we'll see. But, but yes, definitely I was getting a lot of attention and, and this has, uh, has some, uh, uh, the other reason here is it has an impact. Uh, sometimes a candidate has won here and has gone on to the presidency. Uh, many other times, that's not necessarily the case. And I know you have some data on that. Oh, yeah. Certainly, Iowa doesn't have a perfect record of predicting the winner. Um, other people can win, but it's very significant in terms of it winnows the field. There are people who spend a year basically invested in trying to get some momentum out of Iowa, and they put tremendous amount of their time and resources visiting Iowa, polling in Iowa, and this becomes the moment. Did you resonate? Did that work? And we see people um, that can drop out if they don't if they underperform in Iowa, and it's kind of ironic they might be dropping out after one one state of a fifty state union. They didn't perform well in one state, but they're out because they didn't. They invested so heavily to try to get that attention and momentum, and not necessarily the the forty one delegates, but the momentum that doing well um, happens to to give you. And then we also see one of these dynamics besides winnowing the field that Iowa plays is we see some late moves. You know, you and I are following this thing very closely. We have some of our listeners who kind of follow the back and forth of the primaries closely. Some of these people in Iowa are going to show up to the caucuses. They start paying attention in the last week or so and figure out who they're going to support. So we see late moves in the, in the polls, too. And we also, Iowa has a good record of surprises. They, uh, every other cycle, not every cycle, but every other cycle, we get like a big surprise. Someone uh, comes in double digits better than we thought they would. Or someone comes in double digits worse than they thought they would. Uh, So this is part of the very importance of Iowa and how it's fun and unpredictable going into it. Right. We have some interesting uh, people we can look back on. I mean, I remember Rick Santorum. I remember Ted Cruz. I mean, here here are people who uh, uh, 
were out in front and and had a had such a, a good start and then all of a sudden it falls apart but one of the things i wanted to point out here and and this is where where we started the conversation is thinking about iowa it's it's really its impact in terms of voting and selecting the 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 candidate in the is not in the 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 convention uh it, it's i think there's very much a psychological impact and that's where you have why you have so much attention here being the first uh, many people don't know this impact that Iowa only has 41 delegates that go to the convention. Uh, many are not aware of this caucus process, so they kind of interpret it in terms of their own state primary. But to to then be able to campaign on that, I, I'm I'm leading. I'm first. I'm out of the pack here right at the beginning. Uh, that definitely can give some momentum and impact what voters are thinking. Uh, across the state, who may, they they may then be watching and looking at successive primaries uh, as indicators of okay, where am I going to go with my vote, especially like Super Tuesday in a in another month, uh, when so many states and so many people are going to go and make those choices. Yeah, and it's it's hard to say, you know, do you need to win it or or you mentioned uh, Rick Santorum. Rick Santorum won the Republican 2012 cycle. Well, he was never on to be the nominee. Uh, Mitt Romney ended up being the nominee, but he went on to have a very long campaign and can, can comp- competed throughout the cycle, largely from his momentum for Iowa. It created this campaign that survived into many, many states. Mike Huckabee in the Republican side in 2008 also had a long campaign. Ted Cruz won 2016 for the Republicans, also a long campaign. Someone like on the Democratic side, Howard Dean, 2004, he had a real thing going Uh, He underperformed by 10 points, um, ended up in third place behind John Kerry and John Edwards. Well, there was the ticket, right? Right. And he ended up giving this infamous speech and the whole thing fell apart. You know, the performance in Iowa can be key. Someone that really put Iowa on the map was Jimmy Carter running for president in 1976, where he was not well nationally known, one-term governor out of Georgia. He made Iowa's thing won it and propelled into the presidency. So it's just so interesting. When we look at this cycle, this group, what are some interesting uh, possibilities you see as we head into the the caucus voting tomorrow? Well, looking at some of the polling data going into to the caucuses, and, and this is one where you want to think about surprises. You know, think about the possibilities of, of oak. I love the irony of trying to predict a surprise. <laughs> yes. Well, in that, in that, it, it's it's not going to follow the polling. Uh, because you don't know who's going to show up at these caucuses. They're open. You just have to, in the sense, you have to be registered Democrat uh, to be able to participate. Uh, they anticipate, so th- this is another uh, thing that may uh, impact the result. They anticipate the highest turnout ever in Iowa for caucuses uh, tomorrow evening, that this will be, this will just shatter all attendance records. Uh, and so... That is a good sign for the Democrats. They want it, big yes, turnout this yes, cycle. Yes, so it is. seeing yeah. it early on, that's good. Right, and we, we, we're going to follow that right here on Cogley and Morrow on politics <laughs> because we think, we know that's a major uh, factor in impacting the uh, outcome, both of the primaries and the, and the general election. Um, but, so there's a couple of things here. One is, would will the impeachment trial where Senators Sanders, Warren, and Klobuchar have had to be in D.C. 
uh, for the past uh, week and a half or so and not in Iowa, what impact will that have? Uh, they haven't been campaigning. They were, they were there last weekend, but just for a limited time, they had to be back in D.C. Uh, will that detract any? Uh, at least in the polling, it doesn't show that, at least for Sanders and Klobuchar, it doesn't show that it's had a significant impact. Sanders uh, showing that he's leading. Klobuchar has moved up in the polling. Uh, so uh, it, it that's yet to be seen. Uh, but they do have – Sanders, of course, has a huge network on the ground. Uh, uh, so people continuing to campaign on his behalf. Uh, so that that's one, I think, variable that we have to look at. Uh, the other one uh, that I think we need to look at is how far down uh, – and I'm, I don't, I'm not expecting a win here. That's something I, I will predict – where will Joe Biden end up and yeah. and what what impact will that have coming out of this i mean if he's if he's last uh, that of course that's probably good for the Bloomberg campaign as they're looking at their strategy and we'll may talk about him in a moment but but I think that's another factor uh, I, i'm I think they're wanting to place somewhere you know in the top three uh, maybe four is acceptable uh, but i I'm, I think it's it's very challenging. Uh, if Biden is has very little reception in Iowa. Yeah, a number of things. So you talk about the um, some senators being held back for the impeachment trial that would have liked to have been in Iowa campaigning, and that's Sanders, Warren, Klobuchar. When we're talking about this field and where the polls have been, those are kind of the five that get our eyes. I mean, we, we have other people polling at 3%, you know, that we don't really think have a chance here to make waves. But uh, this the... These five, uh, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, and Amy Klobuchar are up there with bigger numbers. Three of these are senators who have been tied up in D.C. in the impeachment trial. That's left Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg able to be on the ground in Iowa with an advantage. So, so why we see some of these numbers actually looking good for Sanders, who's now come out top in some of these polls in Iowa. And of course, he won states last year. It wouldn't surprise me that he could win a state. Um, and we see Amy Klobuchar moving up from her position, from kind of that forgotten pack up into, hey, let's let's keep her eyes, let's take her seriously. Um, they're doing better, but I just think they'd do e- even better if, if they hadn't been distracted, right? We do see their numbers up, but they could have been up even more if they hadn't been distracted by this trial. Right, I, I, and I think, that's, I think that's true. It's just really, I think one of the factors to look at with this, depending on where they place coming out of the caucuses, is the strength of their ground campaign. I think that that tells you a lot about the organization and and how they're set up for the long haul because we got a lot left to go. Iowa, a lot of energy, a lot of resources have been put in there, but those three are relying on the ground game they have already in place and and, and to see how effective uh, that is. And so I think that that will be something really for an insider to watch here. Here's a factor: are they are they set up to to and structured to take this even further because you're going to see those those teams augmented across as we move toward each primary as we move toward super tuesday uh, that that's going to be very very critical so let's talk joe biden just for a second he's kind of been the establishment candidate um, he's been leading in national polls for a long time i personally have never been big on his campaign um, the last time he was in an iowa caucus for president 2008 he registered one percent 
1%. Now, he's coming into this cycle as a two-term vice president. I just think he's maybe a little past his prime. Also, we have these things about his son, Hunter Biden, that have got a lot of attention. Uh, this has been brought up in Iowa caucuses. Some Democrats have asked about what, you know, what's going on here. It's created some scenes. I don't think he's been that smooth. I don't, I'm not sure he's ever very smooth, but he, it's even gotten... So I'm not big here. What happens when... Political science don't like making predictions because you, not that scientists shouldn't predict. You know, someone who studies asteroids should tell us if one is headed to the Earth, right. and it's, someone studying uh, the climate <laughs> should tell us if they think the Earth is going to get warmer. Political scientist who thinks they know something in advance of it happening should say something, right. yes. but political scientists tend not to do it because it's easy to be wrong when it comes to human behavior and politics. I have no shame in my prediction right. game. I'm yeah. going to predict Joe Biden does not win these Iowa caucuses. This is the beginning of the wheels falling apart. Um, he needs to do well, and I'm just not thinking he's going to do well. He was head in the Iowa polls for a long time. Now it's like a dead heat for the polls, and he, him with Sanders, Warren, and Buttigieg near the top of these polls. Yeah, I, I think I think you're correct on this. I, I I would join you in that prediction. I don't make predictions very often, but uh, uh, that that he's not going to win. It, it would be definitely a surprise uh, if he does win. That that gets a little more exciting because then the race is on. It's uh, with, not only between the current candidates dates but with a michael bloomberg thrown in the mix uh i i agree i think if he does not perform uh at least like i said within in the top three or four uh that it it doesn't look good going forward i think there's there's too many opportunities if you look back on the progression of primaries even though he has had some success in south carolina uh that that that'll be uh early on um I think what we see, what we've seen in the past, is that this can quickly derail a campaign because mm-hmm. people in those other primaries see the very, very a very poor performance, and they go, "Okay, this this person is not going to win. They're not going to be able to win at all in the general election," uh, and they start gravitating. and And where they may have been a Biden supporter before, just mainly because of his track record of being a, a vice president, his credentials, may start looking seriously at the other candidates. That that's what the impact of this does it it gets people to 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 focus off of who they may have been supporting that finished low in iowa and then to look at what are the other options and um i think biden still does very well he leads african-american voters which are a big part of the democratic party and that's going to be big on the south carolina vote but they're fourth. They're the fourth state in this process. And can Biden really lose Iowa, lose New Hampshire when he came in as the heir apparent establishment candidate, two term vice president? That would be very um, damaging to his campaign. So who else needs to perform well to um, to, to, to keep this campaign viable to to match expectations? Well, I think in many of the other second tier candidates, uh, I wouldn't say Buttigieg is in that second tier yet because of the polling uh, but we may see uh, there seems like there's been a little bit of a, de- a decline there at least on the national yeah. level and so we may see that his fortunes yeah. are, are tied to this I as well yeah yeah he's the politics of Indiana 
which is much closer to Iowa than New Hampshire. And this is a place where he can play well. I mean, it's been an amazing campaign to see this mayor in his 30s be talked about amongst the elites and poll so well and and do well in debates and stuff like that. But he's going to need some wins here. And Iowa is the platform where for a moment, just a couple weeks ago, he led in Iowa. So this is kind of his big play to establish himself as someone to take serious this cycle. And if he underperforms, that that could hurt him. Right. And, and of course, all your 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 second, third tier candidates that are still in the race, I mean, they're all just hoping for that inertia. They, they, they want a place, top four or five, mm-hmm. uh, especially those that have money like Yang. I mean, the idea is, okay, well, I can just I keep going. I just need to keep my name out there. Well, he's got that's books good. to sell. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, but, he's uh, interesting. I like the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. yeah. Well, percent is, you know, you need to propel that into right, something else. Right. And you're also looking at people who they're going to, that may stay in as long as they can to uh, have the possibility of getting in an administration. Uh, that's, sure. that's another strategy here with someone that may say, okay, I'm too far out to win. I may not win in Iowa. How far can I go with this uh, to at least keep me out in front of people uh, and, and maybe even th- then decide who they throw their support yeah. behind? That becomes very critical. You saw uh, uh, Castro throw his support behind Warren. You know, some of those are moves. They make those moves when they, when they have to, when they can no longer continue and they're going to say, okay, I want to – either support based on ideology and platform, or it could also be strategically trying to place yourself for an opportunity to serve in an administration. All right, so let's talk Elizabeth Warren for a second. She um, has had a very good campaign. People are taking it serious. She's come down a little bit from her highs, though. There was a moment in time uh, in October where she led the polls in Iowa. She's come down a bit, but I don't think she has to win this. Um, She's from Massachusetts, neighboring New Hampshire. If she doesn't win Iowa, um, she still can hold out to New Hampshire, which is another good state for her. Right. Her her decline really started after the... uh, kind of kerfuffle with uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, and accusing him of lying. And, and, and so she started to, I mean, for, at that point, it it seemed, uh, especially the way it was portrayed, it seemed kind of uh, uh, just uh, childish, you know, in a way, this kind of debate or disagreement. Uh, uh, and so she, she started a little bit of a decline at that point. But you're right. Uh, again, her strategy placing up at least in the top three or four, coming out of that with the potential of winning the next primary and getting back on track, mm-hmm. uh, going into uh, uh, several other primaries before Super Tuesday. So uh, I think she's probably, if, if she's not, if she had to be in any other position than first, she's probably of, of all the candidates where she needs to be in positioning herself in the next step. Yeah, absolutely. And the one candidate that's kind of been off the radar, I did an interview on a Minnesota TV station months back, and uh, they said they wanted to know about their own, mm-hmm. Senator Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota. Right. And they said, well, how come her campaign's not going well? And I said, it's going pretty good. Uh, she hasn't dropped out. She's qualified for every debate. Right. She's got 5% in a big group where 5% ain't easy. She's solid. She's consistent. Um, so I'm not saying she's doing bad. She hasn't emerged as the one or the momentum, but she's in the mix yes. and I'd be patient on this. So right now we see there is this kind of late Klobuchar mm-hmm. surge right. in Iowa. 
Um, she's from the neighboring state of Minnesota. Iowa is a good thing for her to place well in. And we just have a new poll out of the American Research Group where she finally came in third place mm -hmm. in Iowa, according to this one poll from this one group just the other day. Uh, Sanders had 23, Joe Biden 17, Amy Klobuchar 16, right above the 15% threshold. Right. So she's moving up. This is up from before. It may move up in the next couple days. And what I thought was also a very interesting out of this poll is the age difference. When they actually break it down by age, uh, like, likely Democratic caucus goers age 18 to 44, Bernie Sanders at 46%. But when you go up 45 or above, Bernie's only at 8%. Um, the young people also like Buttigieg as 11%. They like Warren at 13%. But Klobuchar really jumps up for the older group. For the older group, she goes from 8% to 22% second place. Mm -hmm. So I just have my eyes on Amy Klobuchar. She does need to do well. Signs are indicating she just might do well. She what might, are your thoughts on her? I, yeah. I think that could be that could definitely be a surprise if she is not second or, or if she ends up second or wins. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I think that, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think this is, she's close enough. Uh, I think the challenge there in, in the data would point to the younger voters uh, as to where they would line up. So if a, if a Buddha judge is not uh, performing well in the caucuses, where do those voters go? You know, if, the, if, 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 Buddha judge, fifteen percent for right. the second if, round. If yeah. For the second round, yeah. where do those voters go? Do the young, right. and if there there's a larger percentage of younger voters, do they gravitate to a yeah. Sanders or a Warren to right. propel them in the front? So I think that's going to be critical for a Klobuchar win or place in the top three. Would be where the in that in that she she doesn't make the first round or she's very close, and then in the second round, where do those voters go? Uh, who may not uh, uh, decide to move from a Buddha judge or for, from someone else. So I, I think that's really where the drama comes in in this is is, is who who benefits from that uh, uh, in that second yeah, round. Yeah, the, the, the second choice option if right. someone fails to make. And I'd say if Buttigieg fails to make in any caucus, Klobuchar could pick those sure. up. But also Elizabeth Warren. Yes. If, if Warren fails to make 15%, uh, Klobuchar might pick up some of those too. Right. Uh, so there's going to be some ways. Eyes on her, and of course we could be wrong. You know, this yeah. is hard, hard <laughs> to predict. Um, one more person I want to talk about in terms of Iowa is someone who's not competing in Iowa, but he's also been moving up in the polls. And it's not because he debated well. He hadn't been in a debate yet, but he's been running this. He's been using his fifty billion dollars, running pretty nice television spots. I've been watching football. I know we watched a couple games together, right. um, and we saw back-to-back -back Bloomberg ads coming on. Um, Bloomberg has the strategy of skipping the first four states and then playing big for Super Tuesday. Any thoughts when we think about Bloomberg skipping Iowa, but yet still being important when it comes to thinking about the Iowa caucuses? Well, I think his presence is still there, even though in the caucuses that that and he's not on the on the list for the Democratic Party of Iowa as a, a candidate that is uh, caucusing there. But, uh, uh, you know, this this process is, is kind of crazy. You just don't know what the results will be. But but I think he's still there. One is that. Uh, here we found out uh, just a few days ago that the DNC has changed the rules for the next debate that that actually does away with the donor threshold uh, that opens the door really for Bloomberg to be on the stage later in February. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think that that has some impact. But I think where the impact will be is that they're all going however they come out of Iowa 
as his numbers are growing, uh, they're going to have to address it. They're going to have to position themselves knowing that Bloomberg is there. I think the Bloomberg benefits the most from uh, Joe Biden not performing well in Iowa. I think the, the, the lower that he is in, in the ranking moving forward in the other primaries, uh, the more opening that that makes oh, yeah. for a, 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 a candidate, especially looking at his platform and his his ideological uh, uh, political ideology in terms of how he approaches issues, uh, especially, too, if you see a uh, Sanders and Warren at the top coming out of Iowa, then where are more centrist, more moderate, uh, maybe even economic conservative uh, Democrats, who are they going to gravitate to that, that have been looking to Biden, now where, where, where are their uh, uh, choices going to lie after this uh, primary? Yeah, some thoughts here. I mean, it's interesting. Usually candidates want to be in the debate and want every, you know, try so hard to be in the debate, and it's a horrible thing not to be in the debate. And now we have some candidates in the Democratic cycle complaining, well, Bloomberg's not in the debate. Right. I can't question him on the stage. Yes. Some of them would like to get him on the stage to put him in a tough spot with a tough question. I find those de- debate dynamics to be so interesting. Yeah, and then also when the March report came out, March of you know, last year, to say Bloomberg wasn't going to run, a lot of the analysis was his team had calculated there's just not space for him if Biden's in there. That kind of Biden sucks up that that kind of centrist vote that he, he would he maybe would have a shot if Biden wasn't there. But if Biden's running, he doesn't have a shot. I went on air at the time and said he shouldn't give up so easy. I just don't think Biden is inevitable. I think that he should compete for this. He shouldn't just lay, hand it over to Biden. He should compete. Right. And now we get this 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 thing that he'll come in after the first four states. But I agree. If Biden starts to fall apart, all of a sudden, a lot of those voters might give Bloomberg a look. Right. Yes. I think that that his campaign will it's already ramped up in terms of ads and so on. But I think he will there will really be a very strategic, uh, strong push uh, in those in the states coming up in the in in the additional primaries leading up to the next debate and leading up to Super Tuesday. I mean, he already has that planned. But how strategic will it be based on uh, where Biden is uh, and and uh, and coming out of Iowa? Yeah, so I guess next week we'll have some actual results here out of Iowa and and be looking forward to New Hampshire and and how Iowa shook up the whole mix because we will probably get some drops once we see the results out of Iowa and this this great, fun, democratic primary process is going to continue. We get it for a few months and it's going to be a wild and interesting process this cycle. Well, that's all the time we have here for Cogley and Morrow on Politics this week. Please be sure to tune into the show next week where we'll be talking about New Hampshire primaries. Thank you for joining us on KTRL 90.5 FM.